Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Lenders don't quite understand the dynamic and the rentals and the tenancy surrounding some of these neighborhoods. So lenders are very strict about it. You have to make sure that you're working with lenders that understand the business plan, share your same vision, and are not afraid to go into some of these areas. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Alfredo Riascos. Alfredo is joining us from Miami, Florida. He is a broker as well as the owner of Gridline Properties. Gridline is a full-service commercial real estate brokerage. They represent commercial property owners in the sale leasing, and dispo of their properties. Alfredo, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? Ash, thank you for the opportunity to join you. I'm doing well. Everything here in sunny South Florida is excellent. So I'm glad to be on the show. Hey, are you just rubbing it in? <laughs> well, I'm looking out my window. There's not a single cloud in the sky and it's 75 degrees outside. So yes, I'm rubbing it a little yes. bit, but it's, and it's we not are- going to last forever, unfortunately. We are in early February where even Texas has had snowstorms. There's a freeze going through the Midwest. So we'll live vicariously through you. Alfredo, thank you for joining us. 
if you don't mind, give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now. Sure. So I'm a commercial real estate broker. I'm based in Miami, Florida. I started in the business when I was 19 years old. I'm 36 years as of January 8th. So I've been doing this for some time already, but I still consider myself to be a young person. I'm constantly learning. And more importantly, about four years ago, I opened up Gridline Properties, which is a boutique commercial real estate brokerage in Miami's urban core. And we really have a keen focus on the sale and leasing of commercial properties in South Florida, but more specifically on some of the well-recognized neighborhoods such as Wynwood, downtown Miami, Design District, and other emerging neighborhoods in the urban core areas of the city. Alfredo, when you say commercial, is it all non-residential commercial or does it include multifamily and mixed uses? It includes multifamily. So I have an arm of agents within my shop that predominantly focus on multifamily investments. So we do sell a lot of multifamily properties. And in the last 18 months, that market has been on fire here in South Florida. So that is a segment of the industry that we have a, a strong focus on as well. With all of your years of experience, taking into consideration the current market climate, what would you invest your own money in today? I really love what I consider infill warehousing in urban core areas. And I think that I'm very familiar with the Miami and South Florida market, but I think that that's an industry that you could replicate across any major metros in the United States. And the reason why I like it is warehousing, especially post-pandemic, that really kicked it into high gear, really provides users, being tenants, a huge amount of utility to operate a variety of businesses. So when you look at some of these warehouses, you can see e-commerce businesses operating out of them. You can see light industrial. You can see some warehouses being turned into office spaces. So the uses are very broad in nature, and that accelerates the ability to push rents and target larger tenant pools. So I think that's a very compelling asset class at the moment right now. Can you explain that to us in Phil? urban core. What does that mean? So you really look at the history of major cities across the United States. Cities started at the urban core locations, central business districts, and usually surrounding those central business districts, there's been industrial neighborhoods that previously supplied some of those urban areas. And in Miami specifically, our peripheral neighborhoods really supplied Miami Beach's hospitality industry. So in the 1950s, when Miami Beach started to become a tourism destination, hotels started emerging across the beach. And those hotels needed linen services, they needed dry cleaning, they needed storage. So developers went across the bay and they built warehouse neighborhoods, predominantly between 1950 and 1960, which for decades really serviced those Miami Beach industries. Fast forward to today, a lot of those industries have now gone further west and are now renting spaces in Class A industrial developments that have up-to-date loading docks, much higher ceiling heights, are just a lot more efficient. So those older buildings are now being repositioned by more creative users that are repositioning them and converting them into offices flex spaces, e-commerce centers, and it's really become a trend, I think, across the entire United States to attract a different type of tenancy to buildings that were once potentially obsolete. 
Interesting. What is it about the construction of those buildings that you like and dislike? What I like is it's really value driven, right? So I'll take, for example, we're very prevalent in the Wynwood neighborhood of Miami, Florida. The Wynwood neighborhood was originally an industrial neighborhood that over the course of the last 10 years has just really, really emerged as one of the strongest markets probably in the nation. And what originally attracted tenants to that market was office space in Miami Beach and in areas like downtown Miami started to become very expensive. And what certain investors started to realize, he said, well, Wynwood is just five, 10 minutes away from downtown Miami and Miami Beach. Why don't we take these older warehouse buildings that are no longer suitable to industrial users because they have low ceilings, the loading access is not the best. We could go into those buildings and really look at them as white canvases. And we could go in there and we could pop windows. We could add AC. We could polish the cement floors. We could get creative with art. Murals was a big component of the Wynwood district. And all of a sudden, we could maybe try to attract tenants that are priced out of some of these more expensive neighborhoods to open their marketing agency, their PR company, real estate offices. And it really started to attract the creative classes to come into these buildings and A, achieve, get more space, better rates, and be in a creative environment that was really conducive to those, again, creative businesses. So that trend really stuck. And throughout time, we've seen those now be repositioned into restaurants, breweries. And I think you could see that across many neighborhoods along the U.S. Very interesting. Are there often environmental concerns or is it just like any other building? Well, that's a very good question, Ash. Environmental is the pain of all brokers because here we are, we find a compelling opportunity that we want to pitch to an investor. Pricing makes sense, sellers on board, buyers on board, we sign a contract. And as I had described, many of these buildings specific to Miami housed the cleaning services for many of the hotels. And under cleaning services, there was detergents, chemicals being used. So many of these buildings do have environmental consequences. So in many instances, we have to go through rigorous inspections, soil testing, water testing, that in some cases throws the deal sideways or creates an issue where there is a remediation cost. And then you get into a negotiation with the buyer and the seller to see who's responsible for that. So it does create issues. But fortunately, remediation is not the end of the world. It takes cleaning up and usually you're able to mitigate it if you have a willing and able seller that realizes that any buyer is going to have to be dealing with that same issue. Yeah, interesting story. Here in Cincinnati, we had a cartridge factory which made ammunition during the Second World War. And I think they had a 100-year abatement period where that just ran out. And now they can build, it's an incredible mixed use brewery on the first floor, apartments above it, but they had to wait for the lead remediation from the ammunition. What other pitfalls do people typically run into? Are they constructed pretty solidly? If they've been around for 50, hundred years, I'm assuming they're good. Yeah. These are bunkers. Back then, I think the quality of construction was a little better. Things were built very sturdy back then and specific to Miami. If a warehouse has been around since the 1950s, it's probably gone through a few storms and hurricanes. And if it's still standing, 
it's probably not going anywhere. So also from a buyer's perspective, you're not dealing with requirements for hurricane-proof windows and other issues that you might run into with office towers. So condition is, is certainly a big item. You got to go in there and you got to be diligent about your inspections, roof conditions, structural components. But for the most part, these are bunkers and these bunkers could be, like you mentioned, they could be repositioned into breweries, entertainment facilities, offices, retail, art galleries. So it really opens up the possibilities for investors to get as creative as they really want. Alfredo, I understand the case for buying one of these properties in an area that's already booming. Would you buy in a sea of similar types of properties where there's just no development yet? Would you speculate and buy these? Absolutely. And at the end of the day, for any investor, I think it has to be a function of risk and return. But as an instance of, of South Florida, we've seen tremendous growth from a population change. In the last two years after the pandemic, we just see our population growing and growing and growing. So what we do as brokers is we chase value. That's our job. We have to be able to look at a potential client or investor in the eye and say, hey, Mr. Buyer, we believe in this up and coming neighborhood. I know it's in the fringe of town. I know it feels a little rough. It might feel unsafe, but... We believe that this area, given the growth that we're seeing in the call it more eastern neighborhoods, if we're talking about South Florida, eventually everything's going to head westward. And if the pricing makes sense and you're really able to look into the future two, three, four, five years ahead of time, I do believe that there is the possibility to go into these investments from a value-add perspective, start to renovate the buildings. You might not get the highest and best returns early on but you're really betting on the future of these cities. All right. So let's walk through that. There's some cool buildings. They're old. They're beaten up. Windows are single pane. A lot of them are broken. Maybe the roof needs repaired or replaced. And I bet in three to five years, this area is going to come together and grow. So I'm going to give you two scenarios. I buy a four-story building with low ceilings and then another similar four-story building with high ceilings. I want to stop the bleeding. I want to get some kind of revenue coming in. What do I do? I'm okay buying them. Do I stop the roof leaks? What do I do for tenants on the low ceiling and the high ceiling? Walk me through Um, this. Yes. And look, one of the things that we've noticed that is incredibly helpful in repositioning of those buildings with the purpose of generating the highest and best rents, the shortest turnaround is devising the building. So I'll give you a very common example. These buildings typically range between 10,000 and 20,000 square feet. So let's make it simple. We find a building in an emerging neighborhood. It's a banged up building. It's 10,000 square feet. It doesn't have windows. Paint is chipping away. Electric is not in good shape. There's no lighting. What I would recommend an investor do is, as a 10,000 square foot box, it's going to be difficult to attract a 10,000 square foot tent. There's just not a lot of 10,000 square foot guys out there looking for space. I recommend that you acquire that building. The first thing that you should do is plan to divide it into four spaces. Divide it into four 2,500 square foot spaces. That also gives you a little bit of, you diversify a little bit. If you have one 10,000 square foot box, that's one tenant. Whereas if you have four units, if you have two tenants, you're at least seeing some income. And Also, the tenant pool is going to be a lot broader as the spaces become smaller. And when the spaces become smaller, your price per square foot on rents also goes up. 
So you can maximize the rents and diversify your spaces. So I would tell somebody, acquire the building, divide it into four units, pop open some windows, paint it all white, maybe get a mural outside, put some windows out there, put some nice lighting inside, polish the cement floors, and just leave these wide open spaces where a tenant could walk in and really envision their business and say, this is a wide open canvas. I could do whatever I want with this space. And typically, you got to incorporate a couple of months of free rent to attract the tenants. That allows them to go in there if they need to build a conference room, if they need to build additional offices or do any work, you accommodate that and you lure them in with that from that angle. Is having eight to 10 foot ceilings much different than 14 to 16 foot? Yeah, I would be a little nervous about eight to 10. That's going to limit your creativity. And a lot of it is what I consider the wow factor. When you go into a warehouse, one of the things that I think attracts the creative classes is walking into a building that's going to have much higher ceilings than your stereotypical cookie cutter office space in a suburban market or even conventional office building. So they walk into a warehouse space and they get 15, 16, 17 foot ceilings. It has a wow factor. And I think tenants love that. They can get creative with lighting, art, accessories. And I think that's a big selling point for tenants. So buildings under 12 feet, you better be getting a good deal if you're going to take that swing. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. How important are elevators? Let's say three stories and above, should you make sure there's an elevator? Well, there's two factors here. Is the code going to require an elevator? That's a whole other component, which they might. If you're going to reposition a four-story warehouse building into offices, the city might impose a requirement where you have to provide ADA access. But let's put that to the side. As an owner, I think once you go above three levels, you want to have an elevator. Most tenants are not going to want to go up four or five flights of stairs maybe in New York City where they're a little bit more used to it. But at least in South Florida, people are lazy down here. So I think that three stories is probably your threshold without an elevator. Would you prefer single story, two story, or three story? That's a good question. Look, it really depends on the project. I think that in a perfect world, a multi-story is great if you're able to use the ground level, more of a retail hospitality use. I would love to see a component where you take a four-story building, it's an old warehouse, four-story warehouse. We convert the ground level to be an amenity for the upper levels. I would love a coffee shop. Coffee shops attract people. They have a good curb appeal. Maybe we have a small restaurant next door and then maybe some sort of showroom or retail use that makes a building stand out. 
And then on the upper levels, we go with office. I think that's the perfect ratio and combination. That's what I would love to see in a perfect world when hunting for property. Let's throw a bourbon bar and a speakeasy in there too. I was going to say that too, but <laughs> I think you're right. If we have a coffee on one side and a happy hour bar on the other, I think we got what we need. All right. So back to my scenario, because I really want our best ever listeners to take the blinders off and start looking at this type of asset. So again, there's not much demand to redevelop this asset today. What are the typical tenants that we can use as fillers? I'm thinking woodworking, classic car storage, furniture storage, office furniture storage. What are some other uses that you've seen where we can get people in there dirt cheap, but at least they're paying some rent? I think you'd be surprised how many industries are really looking at these buildings. And I think that's where there is a tremendous opportunity because the ability to cater to multiple industries is immense. So one of the most common ones that we see is e-commerce companies. And what I mean by e-commerce companies is there's now a revolution, which is Joe and Sally could open up a store on Instagram where they sell candles and they sell candles via Instagram and their website. And Joe and Sally outgrew their apartment and now they need a 2,500, 5,000 square foot space. They don't want to go to a conventional class A warehouse building where there's 40 foot containers driving around. It's probably going to be too much for them, but they would be perfectly equipped to be renting space on a 2,500 square foot warehouse space that allows them to have their office, their showroom, their inventory, their distribution, and still be in a good location. Another instance is you mentioned classic cars. In Miami, we have an immense amount of wealthy individuals that have art, wine, car storage requirements, and they love to have these warehouses where they store their belongings. A lot of them turn them into these really impressive man caves. They pay a lot of money for them. That's more of a vanity use. But moving on, then there's also the ability where as these neighborhoods start to become a little bit better known and become a little bit safer, coffee shops are attracted to them. Breweries that are actually brewing and distributing, but also want to have a taste room, they are attracted to these type of uses. And then there's also the office users that are tired of being in office buildings and want more affordable offices in a larger space. That also lends itself to be a great use as well. So you really have a lot of versatility in your tenant base. Alfredo, as a broker, what are some of the creative marketing strategies that you've used? Because you're attracting mom and pop tenants. I'm sure you're attracting national tenants. What are some ideas of creative strategies that have worked well for you? The marketing is a, a crucial component of it. And I think that one of the biggest hurdles that I've ran into is, let's go back to John and Sally, the owners of the successful candle company. John doesn't want his wife, Sally, working out of unsafe neighborhood, a neighborhood where she's not safe walking out at night after work. So from a marketing standpoint, we really try to highlight the positive components of that area, how that area is growing. And a lot of people don't realize when they go into these neighborhoods, who's behind some of these walls. A lot of these buildings, you approach them and it's big, ominous facade, but you don't know that if once you go inside the building, you might have the most successful candle company that has 10 employees. They're all young. It's a vibrant space. Next door to them, you could have another e-commerce company that's doing the same thing. And there's actually a community of like-minded tenants and businesses within that neighborhood. So in our marketing materials, we're very, very specific at showing other tenants, look, 
this company's renting from this building down the street. This other group purchased this building. They're renovating it. And we make a case for the neighborhood and really emphasize the neighborhood rather than the asset as much. I love that. That is incredible. I do want to move into retail a little bit. But my last question on this type of asset is, is there often money available from the city in the way of grants, tax abatements, facade improvements? Yes. In certain instances, I can't tell you that it's been the most common, but the city specifically, they've allocated grants for the improvements of facades. So if you acquire a building and you want to paint and improve the facade, in some instances, the city in Miami specifically, they were granting up $10,000 in grants to renovate the facades of buildings. So that's been something that we've seen, but there's still challenges. Lenders don't quite understand the dynamic and the rentals and the tenancies surrounding some of these neighborhoods. So lenders are very strict about it. You have to make sure that you're working with lenders that understand the business plan, share your same vision, and are not afraid to go into some of these areas. All right. And you're in one of the hottest retail restaurant scenes in the country. Let's dive into that a little bit. What are you seeing right now in terms of retail? It's been unbelievable what's happened in Miami in the last two years. And it was really like a light switch. The pandemic happened in early 2020. And as a broker, we were, I was terrified. My business was two years old at that point. I had a group of agents. Things were starting to finally kind of flow into place. And then boom, we got hit with a pandemic. And we do a lot of retail leasing as well. And we were nervous, but all of a sudden leading into probably December of 2020, the light switch went off and it was like a bazooka of interest from all across the board. And what was the most incredible is historically in South Florida, it's been very challenging to bring New York-based hospitality groups into the market. New York-based groups always looked at us as like, look, Miami's a fun city, but it's predominantly based on tourism. We don't really want to be dependent on that. We'll and use it as starting, our playground. Exactly. We'll use it like our playground. We don't really take it too seriously. <laughs> All of a sudden, hospitality groups really started to zone in. And I think that the first one that was a major catalyst was major food group out of New York City which all of a sudden came into Miami and they didn't open one restaurant. They opened five restaurants at the same time. Those five restaurants became the hottest restaurants in town. And that was really the catalyst. All of a sudden, every restaurant operator wanted to have presence in South Florida. South Florida was open to the public. People were down here. People were moving. And for us, it was the Super Bowl. So it was a great experience. It's still very much active. However, the dust is starting to settle and things are normalizing, if you want to call it, but we're in a completely different planet post-pandemic down here in South Florida. Yeah. And Alfredo, you're a young guy, but you saw the tail end of when the market got decimated in 2008 through 2010. Yes. And Miami especially was hard hit. Mm -hmm. Knowing in the past, Miami's had those cycles. What are your concerns with Miami going forward? Is it gotten overheated? I started in 2007 and I started when I was 19. I was still living in my parents' house. So I didn't really have much responsibilities, luckily. But I went into an industry where I was surrounded by people that had been in the industry for 10, 20 years, had kids, had major responsibilities. And I'll never forget the deep breaths of stress and desperation that I heard within the office when I was that age. 
And I recognized that I was in an industry where we don't get paid by the hour. We get paid by our production. And I told myself, I need to be conservative with my approach. I need to be very frugal with my finances. I need to make sure that I have a cushion for that rainy day. And as you said, Ash, Miami is a boom and bust town. And the pandemic and post-pandemic era really reminded me of some of those boom and bust moments. So I always approach my business from a very, very conservative standpoint. When the pandemic happened, we had very strong reserves in terms of our operating budget. So I knew that even if the world halted for 12 months, we were going to be okay. But I see now many agents that in 2021, all of a sudden you see them rolling around in the Range Rover that they just bought two weeks before because they closed one or two deals. Now, as we go into 2023, the market's shifting and Miami's still very active, but guess what? It doesn't last forever. And we don't really know what's going to happen in six months or 12 months. So to any agent out there, anybody getting into the industry, you have to be very responsible with your finances and prices go up, prices go down and there's cycles in this business. So you have to be very, very, very disciplined in your approach. I have not heard a better answer to that question than what you just said. Us as real estate people and a lot of finance people, a lot of people want to think the arrow always goes up and to the right. And it's not until you've lived through that market cycle. And unfortunately, anybody under the age of 33 really hasn't lived through that market cycle. So we've got a lot of overly optimistic investors out there, but you laid it out perfectly. Yeah. And we don't know what's going to happen. I'm sure you've heard people say, look, in 2024, rates will be back down again. How do you know that? No one knows, right? So Nobody knows. Nobody has a crystal ball out there. Yeah. So in terms of retail, are there still opportunities? And how do I get to buy in such a hot market? How do I get the in when there's so many other people in line ahead of me? I'm not a local, but I want to invest in Miami. How am I able to buy a storefront, a restaurant building, a mixed-use building down there? There's always going to be opportunities is the answer. But the people that you see that are constantly buying the quote unquote best opportunities are the investors that are in the market day in, day out. They breathe it. They're educated. They know all the pressure points. They know what space is rent for. They know the tenant market. They know what lenders to work with. If you are going to get into investing in commercial real estate, You have to be immersed. It needs to be a full-time job. If you want to get into it passively, my recommendation is to work with a sponsor that is doing the day-to-day in every single day. But you have to be incredibly present in the marketplace to be able to source the right opportunities. And the right opportunities, the reality is they come up out of nowhere and the window to jump on them is minuscule. When you see an opportunity come into play, you have 24, 48 hours to really jump on it, put a contract on the table and move forward because otherwise somebody's going to come in and it's going to take advantage of the situation and take the deal away from you. So you as a broker and me as an investor, and I've bought everything from restaurants to medical to land warehouse in the Midwest and Southeast. How do I get your attention? And how do I say, Alfredo, I want a great deal. You don't really know me. What can I do? to get in front of you and get that next big deal? That's a very, very good question. And us as brokers, we only have so much time in the day. And 
what I actually recommend people that call me, I get people that call me because they see my name on specific property ads or marketing materials, but I can't take in more clients. I could only please so many people. So what I tell a lot of these investors, I usually pair them with juniors. And I remember what I would do when I was 20, 21 years old, and I had the opportunity to work with a qualified investor. I didn't have a book of 10 successful clients. So if you're an investor getting into the market, I would recommend that you find a junior. Make sure you get in front of that junior. Meet him in person. Show that junior why you're qualified and why you're ready to invest. And make sure that he or she puts you at the top of their list and stay on top of that broker. And if you find the right broker, he's going to hustle for you because he doesn't have 20 other clients that are a priority. The junior agents, in my opinion, are your best keys to any new market. And that's what I used to do when I was out in the streets knocking on doors. The opportunity to work with some of these individuals that gave me the chance to represent them was a huge flattering concept. So I wanted to make sure that I provided. That advice is gold. Thank you so much for that. Alfredo, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Look, this business is certainly a marathon. This is not a sprint. If you're looking to take shortcuts or you think that you're going to be an overnight millionaire, you are so, so wrong. This is a marathon. You have to do your homework. You have to go through the exercises. You have to be disciplined. And more importantly, it's a relationship-based business. You need to build relationships with people in the industry. And once you build those relationships, you're going to generate people's trust. Once you generate people's trust, you'll start to see that doors start to open. But that takes time, it takes discipline, and it takes consistency. Alfredo, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, I am. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read? There's a couple, but there's a real estate book that I really like, which is called Risk Game. It's by Francis Greenberger, Risk Game. He's a very successful developer out of New York City, and he shares all his real estate advice and his story as to how he came up in the city, basically from nothing. And it's always a book that I recommend to anybody trying to get into the real estate business. Alfredo, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I'm a big proponent of anything that involves the youth. I think that the youth in many of the cities that I'm involved in is in many cases underserved. So if there's an opportunity where Gridline Properties or myself, we could help whether it be Thanksgiving drive, toy drive in the holidays. That's really where we have most of our attention. Last year, we were involved in a big back to school drive. So youth is my main focus at the moment. And Alfredo, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? The best way to reach out to me is via email. Shoot me a note. Tell me what you want to talk about. I'm very responsive via email. Get my attention and I'll be sure to get back to you. My email address is ariascos at gridlineproperties.com. I got to thank you. What a great conversation. You've given us so many great nuggets of advice. We dove into old historic buildings. I wanted to dive more into retail, but I want to be respectful of your time. Maybe you'll come back and we'll deep dive into retail as well. But thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I would love to come back. I'm a big fan of your show, Ash. I think you guys do a fantastic job bringing different people from different industries or different walks of life. So I wish you guys the most success. And again, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Well, thank you, brother. Best ever listeners. Thank you again for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. 
Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.